Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of True Crime on Easy Street. Once again, I'm Katie Givens, and I'm not a lawyer. Scott Wright, I am a mediocre journalist. I'm Kelly Turner, and I'm not a doctor. Well, you were just taking medicine a second ago. Are you sure you're not a doctor? <laughs> I hope you have a doctor. Yeah, I do. Okay, I have good. A doctor. I hope that he or she knows what they are doing. Maybe that's some kind of HIPAA violation. Scott just telling everyone Kelly's business. Wait, yeah. she's. I didn't say who her doctor is. I'm going to sue him. Is that a HIPAA violation? I, well, she's I, not a lawyer yet, so she can't help you. I well, guess you're not thank a you. Thank you for stepping all over my joke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Did I? Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> you just stepped all over it. That's okay. Should we we're start all, over? We're all mo- a little bit more chipper today because we've had that extra hour of sleep. So this is the daylight savings time edition. Or, or are we out of daylight savings? Yeah, now we're back on standard time. Oh, this is the standard time yeah. edition. Oh, yeah. Standard sounds so much less exciting than yeah. savings time. Ooh. Well, yeah. and it's daylight saving time. If you That's will. true. It's it's not, oh, you know what? Good call. It's not savings not plural. plural. It's saving singular. No, yeah. That's right. If you've Good for you, it. Katie. <laughs> I know that, that especially because of the on. Teen Titans episode. Uh, all right. <laughs> I don't know anything about that. Because it's a whole episode about daylight saving time. Daylight saving time. So let's talk. I have my rubber band on my hand so that I don't lip smack. And I already did it twice. Ah. But let's talk about the great time, first of all, before we get started, that we had on Friday. We had a, we our had a first ever uh, field trip. Yes. The, the team of experts went to Gadsden and we saw a, 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 an original production. Yes, we did. Related to something that we have talked about on the show. Yep. And it's too late for you listeners out there to go see it now because we saw the Friday night before the end of the run on Sunday. Correct. So if you want to know what we saw, then you need to go back and listen to our episode from June of 2021 titled Hither and Yon. Hither and Yon. And it was, it was, it had a uh, Viola Hyatt. It also had Marie Hilly. Yeah. So that was episode True Crime, three. Alabama True Crime. Yeah. And, and Theater of Gadsden did a fantastic job doing a play about it. Mm-hmm. And we saw it and we have talked about it before. So. Yep. And the play was called White Plains Blue Mountain. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. We enjoyed it. We had a really good night. Went out to dinner. Had a little field trip. Did we have drinks after? I don't remember. show, a few drinks after. Okay, we did have drinks after. I was about to say, you (laughs) (laughs) did. I did. Wait, just me? I had water after because I was the driver. You were the designated driver. Thank you for that. Everybody, please drink responsibly. Do that. Okay. Are you guys ready to do... I don't know You're you're driving this boat today, I'm in the big chair. You are, so... You know, take it away. Uh, we're going to do In Cold Blood, part okay. one today. All right. This is a two-part series. Okay. Are you going to talk about what In uh, Cold Blood is? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So drone shots are all the rage these days, right? So let's take a 500-foot high pass at Holcomb, Kansas. Okay. On November the 14th and 15th, 1959. Not that there's all that much to see, really. With only 270 residents, Holcomb was barely a blip on any misfolded roadmap. To borrow a phrase from O. Henry, the landscape was as flat as a flannel cake for as far as any drone shot could see. In his 1966 masterpiece, In Cold Blood, which, by the way, is the book that created the genre of true crime as we know it today, author Truman Capote wrote that Holcomb was barely there. It was split down the middle by the Santa Fe Railroad. It was boxed in by a state highway to the north, the Arkansas River, as it is called in Kansas. 
to the south and prairie land and wheat fields to the east and west. Holcomb's Main Street was still a dirt road in 1959. The bank had closed 25 years earlier, but it was still there. It had been divided up and rented out as apartments. That's random. Very random. But this is all in In Cold Blood, which you can read. And it's amazing if you've never read it. The dance hall was also shuttered, but the fading sign out front remained. There was a train depot, but none of the fancy passenger trains ever stopped in Holcomb. Only the occasional freight, Capote wrote. Next to the depot was a rundown post office. Also in town were two filling stations. One doubled as a small grocery store, the other as a diner. In November of 1959, at Tiny Hartman's Cafe, four or four tops and a lunch counter and nothing more. A cup of coffee and a hamburger cost a quarter. Wow. Inflation is a thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. The nicest public structure in Holcomb was the school building, where the adult inhabitants of the town, along with the farmers and ranchers who lived in the surrounding area, sent their kids to sit in classrooms from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. There were fewer than 400 students in Holcomb in 1959 in the fall semester. Katie, does that sound familiar? I was about to say, I think Scott and I went to a school just like that. We did indeed right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. Cedar Bluff High School is a K-12 school, like a lot of the schools here are mm-hmm. in this part of uh, Northeast Alabama. I think maybe about, what, 600? Yeah, probably. But still probably one of the right. smaller schools in Alabama. Mm-hmm. So go Gale- Big Red. Galesville probably has about 400 students. That sounds about right. Yeah. So as you can see... There really wasn't that much to see in Holcomb, even from a drone shot. Here's one last observation from Truman Capote to help you complete the scene. Like the waters of the river, like the motorists on the highway, and like the yellow trains streaking down the Santa Fe tracks, drama in the shape of exceptional happenings had never stopped in Holcomb. That all changed on Sunday, November the 15th, 1959. Holcomb School was such a nice structure because, by and large, the quiet, content people of the tiny town were prosperous. Farm life had been good to the locals in recent years, and that prosperity was reflected in the construction of the school and also in the gleaming white, 100-foot-high cylindrical silos by the railroad tracks. They were all bursting with grain from several seasons of agreeable wheat weather. Farming was the life for most of the folks in and around Holcomb, And one of the most able agriculturalists of them all was 48-year-old Herbert William Clutter. The name had been Clotter with a K and an O when his family first immigrated to the States in 1880, but the spelling had changed along the way. And by 1959, everyone around knew the Clutters and how to spell their name correctly with a C and a U. Where did they immigrate from? Sounds German to me. It does, yeah. That's why I was wondering, yeah. Yeah. Herbert Clutter had been a county farm agent in Holcomb back in the 1930s, helping other farmers keep their crops growing by introducing the latest advances in agriculture. And it was around that time that he married his wife, Bonnie, three years younger. 20 years later, Herbert and Bonnie had an 800-acre farm of their own and leased 3,000 more acres. They raised cattle and sheep and properly rotated their crops. The Clutters also tended an orchard of fruit trees down by the river, the Arkansas River that Bonnie jokingly told visitors Herbert cared for more than his own children. (laughs) The Clutters lived in one of the most impressive homes in town and had four kids for Herbert to love nearly as much as his apples. 
two of whom were still in their teens and living with their parents in November of 1959. Kenyon, the only male child of Herbert and Bonnie Clutter, was 15. His sister, Nancy, was 16. The other two daughters were older and had moved away. Ivana was 23 and married, living in Illinois. Beverly, age 20, was attending college 400 miles east in Kansas City. Kenyon and Nancy were as popular as their parents, well-known and well-liked in town. They were both straight-A students, active in school clubs and activities, and hosted parties for their classmates in the basement beneath their 3,600-square-foot home. It's a pretty large home for the time, isn't it? Big house. Uh, Mm -hmm. Five bedrooms, three baths, 14 rooms, built in 1948. Okay. Oh, wow. On Friday, November the 13th, Nancy played Becky Thatcher in the student production of Tom Sawyer. Herbert and Bonnie beamed in the audience that night. Nancy's father telling her backstage afterwards that she was, quote, just beautiful, honey, a real Southern belle, unquote. Much like today, Thanksgiving hovered on the horizon. And the Clutters were planning a reunion of sorts to coincide with the holiday. Over 50 members of the extended family were expected to travel from as far away as Florida to spend the weekend at River Valley Farm, which was Herbert's name for his impressive spread. The invitations had already been mailed. There had not been such a great gathering of the Clutter clan since Grandma Clutter died back in 1954. Certainly, the excitement of that upcoming event was never far from the minds of Herbert and Bonnie and Nancy and Kenyon that weekend. There was sleeping space for a dozen in the overwide upstairs hallway, the imitation pointed out, and room for all of the kids down in the basement. Dinners, movies, touch football, sports on TV, horse rides, afternoon naps. The clutters could hardly wait. They had the whole thing planned out. But that joyous celebration was still nearly two weeks away on November the 14th. On that last Saturday, the following events took place among the members of the Clutter Clan. Nancy helped the 13-year-old daughter of a neighbor learn to bake a cherry pie. After the pie was eaten, Bonnie looked after the little girl until her mother came for her, because before the oven was even cool, Nancy had rushed off to give another neighbor's daughter a trumpet lesson. Meanwhile, Herbert and Kenyon drove to nearby Garden City to attend a 4-H club meeting. This is very wholesome. Yes. You guys know what 4-H I had to look it up. I forgot. 4-H. You know what the 4-H's are? No. No. Head, heart, hands, and health. Okay. Yeah. All good H's. I would have guessed All good H's. Mm -hmm. Now, hell is in there nowhere. No. No. But anyway, speaking of that last day at the clutter home, one of the most compelling portions of Truman Capote's In Cold Blood came in the early pages as he alternated scenes between the clutters moving through the paces of their last day alive and the two killers driving across Kansas headed towards Holcomb. I know some people disagree, but I believe that Capote created a new style of writing. He called it the nonfiction novel. He took fictional techniques combined with facts and turned it into what In Cold Blood became. I mean, he took some liberties. There are a few liberties that he might have, especially the ending of the book, when we'll explain that next week. But yeah, there are some, uh, there are some liberties that he took for fictional, creative purposes. Mm-hmm. But to me, that's, that's, that's a form of art. St- start reading In Cold Blood today and try to stop. I oh, dare you. Okay. I dare you. You can't stop reading it. And I've read it three times in the last three weeks. <laughs> How many pages is it? 
300, 250, okay, something so like not that. A, not too big. Real, I was thinking, for some reason, I was thinking it it's was a not really this. thick book. It's not like six okay. inches deep. Okay. No. It's not like a George R.R. R. Martin book. <laughs> no, it is not one of those. Uh, but anyway, back at uh, home after the 4-H club meeting that afternoon, Kenyon applied a final coat of varnish to a cedar-lined hope chest he was building in the basement. It was to be a gift for his sister, Beverly, who is to be married in December. Herbert met with his life insurance agent in the home office right off the living room. Surely, Herbert Clutter thought about his own mortality just before he signed the check that would be the only payment he ever made on his brand new $40,000 life insurance policy. And by the way, that policy paid double indemnity in case of accidental death. Mediocre journalist or not, I looked it up. That's about $800,000 today. Oh, wow. Mm. And well, once again, inflation is real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That night, the family sat in front of the television with visiting Bobby Rupp, Nancy's boyfriend. Nancy and Kenyon quarreled over which programs to watch. Herbert Clutter munched on an apple as he sat in the glow of the TV in his rocker armchair. Bonnie had gone to bed early, as she often did. According to the last entry Nancy Clutter ever made in her diary, Bobby Rupp went home around 11 p.m., destined to become the last native of Holcomb to ever see the Clutters alive, and for a short time, the primary suspect in a quadruple murder investigation. Mm. To hear her friends tell it later, Nancy was the last to go to bed, probably at some point after midnight. She liked to stay up late on the weekends. Who doesn't, right? Right. She washed her hair, dried it, and brushed it out 100 times, just like she did every Saturday night. So this was Saturday, hair washing night. This Saturday night hair washing. Right, yeah. <laughs> ritual. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and then she wrote in her diary, it was a short entry that night, she said her prayers and prepared to climb under the covers. In those moments, she was in her bathrobe and night slippers. There was a towel wrapped around her still damp hair. Just before tucking herself in, Nancy perhaps heard something strange downstairs. Unfamiliar voices, maybe, or heavy footfalls on the hardwood floor. She shoved her favorite gold wristwatch, a Christmas gift from her father from the year before, into the toe of one of her shoes. So she thought robbers were there. Yes. Mm -hmm. And by then, it was the early morning hours of Sunday, November the 15th, 1959. The Clutters always went to church, and Nancy's friend, Nan Ewalt, was also a faithful follower. Every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, Mr. Ewalt dropped off his daughter at the Clutter home, and every Sunday morning, he watched her welcomed inside before driving away. The Clutters were Nan Ewalt's ride to the First Methodist Church over in Garden City, seven miles away. Every Sunday, no exceptions. But that Sunday morning, Nan Ewalt rang the front doorbell. No answer. She then proceeded to knock on all three other exterior doors. No answers. Hmm. Nan saw both cars in the garage and noticed that the exterior door to Mr. Clutter's home office was slightly open, but she didn't want to barge right in. So Nancy Ewalt and her father drove back into town and telephoned the Clutters from a friend's house. No answer. Hmm. Nan Ewalt and the friend whose phone she had borrowed decided to return to the clutter home and tiptoe inside, both fearing, they said later, that something was horribly wrong. Yeah, because this is very out of the ordinary. 
You said every Sunday. Every Sunday. Happened. No exceptions. No exceptions. Well, you go to someone's house, you see their cars in the driveway. Mm-hmm. No one's answering. That's suspicious regardless of who you are. Especially if they always answer. Yeah. If, if you knock on their door and they always answer, mm-hmm. if you just come every now and then and, and it's, and you, you know, it's, it's hit or miss, they're probably hiding. Well, and you. Herbert Clutter, <laughs> Herbert Clutter was, yeah, right. Yeah. Herbert Clutter was the man with no vices. He didn't even drink caffeine. He didn't smoke cigarettes. He went to church every Sunday. Well, so this is, something's wrong. And in the fifties, mm-hmm. people answered their door. You know, now people don't come to the door, but I feel like 1959, you knock on someone's door, someone's coming to the door. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. There weren't cell phones or things mm-hmm. like that to keep in touch, so you visited. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was a different time, certainly. Mm-hmm. So, Mr. Ewalt had mud on his boots. He didn't go inside the house. He let the two girls go inside the house. They went through the door to the kitchen. There were no breakfast dishes on the table or in the sink. Nancy Clutter's purse was lying on the floor, partially opened. There was not a sound of anyone stirring anywhere in the house. It was an eerie silence, Mm -hmm. the girls said later. Together, they climbed the stairs to Nancy's room at the top of the stairs and poked their heads through the open door. Bright sunlight flooded the space from curtains that had not been drawn the night before. Neither of the girls remembered screaming or running down the stairs, though they certainly did both. But that bright sunlight they never forgot. Or Nancy, lying in the bed with the covers pulled up and far too much blood on the wall behind her head. Mm. Nancy's dead, they screamed to Mr. Ewalt as they exploded out of the house and ran across the front yard. When Mr. Ewalt got into the kitchen to call the Finney County Sheriff, he found the phone line cut. Oh. So he shoved the girls into his car and roared back into town to call for help. Mm-hmm. A few minutes later, the sheriff arrived at the clutter home. And within a few more minutes after that, there were dozens of other people there too. State troopers, a police photographer, local journalists, and sadly, the county coroner. Mm. All four members of the clutter family, Herbert, Bonnie, Nancy, and Kenyon had been found tied up in separate rooms, each killed by a single shotgun blast to the head. Herbert Clutter's throat had been cut. There was no explanation, no apparent motive, and barely a clue at the scene. After a few days of crisscrossing the county, interviewing friends and family of the Clutters, one agent of the Kansas Bureau of Investigation said, of all of the people in the world, the Clutters were the least likely to be murdered. They were well-liked. Very. In the town. They didn't yeah. have enemies, as you said before. None. Right. And like you said, without any vices or anything, you know, you wouldn't go to gambling or to a business dispute or that kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was nothing. No reason. No excuse. No clues. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. Shop Cherokee County first before you go out of town or shop online, Scott. Visit many retail businesses here in Cherokee County. And do you want to know why? Please tell me. Okay. They are faithful to support our local schools, our sports teams, our clubs, our community nonprofits, and more. So keeping your money here in the local economy, that's going to support all of that. Teresa and Joy do a great job in the chamber. Amazon sucks. Shop local. (laughs) Absolutely agree. (laughs) 
Local businesses provide jobs for you and your neighbors. So brought to you by the Cherokee County Chamber of Commerce, Shop Local. I've seen you try to go out of town, Scott, and I'm not going to stand for it anymore. I don't trust myself to drive out of town. You better take your tail to the local shops from now on. Do you understand me? I will do a much better job of shopping (laughs) locally. Thank you for the Cherokee County Chamber of Commerce being a sponsor of the show and reminding us all to shop local. So the Post-Herald here in Cherokee County is a uh, sponsor of True Crime on Easy Street, and we are conducting a subscription drive. What we want you to do is subscribe to the paper because in December, when the bowl matchups come out, we're going to put an entry list in the paper and only subscribers to the Post-Herald are eligible to win a $500 first place prize. You pick the most bowl game winners, you get 500 bucks. College football bowl games. College football bowl games. All right. So step one, subscribe to the Post-Herald. Call 256-927-4476 to subscribe to the paper for as little as $20 a year, depending on your zip code. If you're right here in town, it's 20 bucks. All right. That sounds wonderful. Okay, guys, this week at Easy Street, Wednesday night, we have The Replacements, which is Shane Givens and Randy Baker, and also special guest, Travis, a.k.a. Shorty West. It is his birthday party, so you know you don't want to miss that. Thursday night is karaoke. Friday night, we've got Jake and Casey. And Saturday night is Cane Break Holler. So it's going to be a great week at Easy Street. All right, welcome back to our episode. Scott, you were telling us they had just discovered the bodies of an entire, well, not an entire family, but all of them who still lived in the home. That's right. And now we switch gears completely. Okay. To something that is related to the story, but if okay. you don't know in cold blood, this is going to be new to you. Okay. Well, let me get this straight though before we move forward because I'm I'm the I'm the uh, you're the dummy today. I'm the dummy. All right. Yeah. So all family members, the two teenagers and the two parents, all were shot. Yes. Tied up and shot. That's right. And then also the the man Herbert, his throat was cut. Correct. Question. Yeah. Was that post-mortem or was that before no. they shot him? It was before they shot I'll him. I'll tell you next week. Oh. Well, <laughs> it's, it's that kind of day here. Yeah. And they're found by these two teenage girls. Yes. Nancy's well, friends. Well, Nancy's friends found Nancy. Okay. Right. They didn't know about The cops found people. everyone else. The cops found everybody yeah. else. Okay. So, 35-year-old Truman Capote is sitting in his apartment in New York City and he reads the one-column headline on page 39 of the news section of the November 16th, 1959 edition of the New York Times. It reads as follows. Wealthy farmer, three of family slain. The dateline on the story was Holcomb, Kansas. Odds are Capote had no idea where in the whole wide world Holcomb was. Hell, most of the people in Kansas don't know where Holcomb is. In Kansas City, way over on the east, they call that part of the state out there. Out there. Yeah. Yeah. The we, we understand that. Yeah. The we boonies. get that here in Alabama. Yeah. So, and, and that's pretty extraordinary that it made it to the New York Times. The next day. The very next day. The very next in day. In a time where it's not like today where information travels at the speed of light. Well, in a sense that it, it did, but not for everyone. I mean, it, newspapers, especially the New York Times, they had teletype machines. And so if, if the Associated Press or the United Press International, which still existed at the time, ran this story on the newswire, 
it got dumped and sent to every newspaper in the country, and it was just up to which newspaper decided that they needed to fill a space and run that tiny story. But how would they get? How would this? How would they get the story to begin with to send that out? How did Remember, that I said that there were journalists who showed up at the house. Uh, so it's just on some the local yeah. journalist. Yeah, it was the local newspaper and the local radio station both showed up. Okay, nothing happened in Holcomb. So they no, send so that this out. Is, this is, and when this happened, yeah. it it all hit the fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So Capote's creative juices are already flowing at this point. He read the minuscule but still attention-grabbing headline and began pondering an article or perhaps a series of articles focused on how such a random, heinous crime might affect the people of the tiny town of Holcomb. Mm -hmm. But again, Holcomb was a sparsely populated hamlet in the Midwestern U.S., a part of the country that Capote, an odd bird to say the least, even in the Big Apple surrounded by millions, knew next to nothing about. Capote was splashy, colorful, highbrow. He was something of a darling in New York's cafe society, a 1950s gay stereotype in his voice and mannerisms, but able to rub elbows with famous and accomplished fellow writers as well as artists, scholars, and socialites. The openly gay Capote needed a buffer between himself and those people. Those ordinary, everyday West Kansans. Mm. He knew that, and he knew just the person to bring along. Someone who could speak their language, so to speak. As a child, Capote was practically abandoned by his parents through age 10. He often boarded with his aunts in a small southern town, waiting and wanting to be wanted by either his constantly absent father or his increasingly alcoholic mother. Whenever he stayed with his relatives, the little boy born Truman Streckfuss Persons spent his time playing and puttering around with the little girl who lived next door. Truman always called her Nell, her first name. We know her today as Nell Harper Lee, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. Tiny little Truman, later to become the inspiration for Dill Harris in Mockingbird, was too delicate to play with the boys, and Nell, two years younger, was too much of a tomboy to play with the girls. So the two children spent most of their time together while they were together in Monroeville, Alabama. Truman eventually took the name of his mother's second husband, but it didn't really change his lot in life to have a new father or a new last name. Little Truman still felt neglected and was still often temporarily abandoned by his mother. The newly christened Truman Capote eventually ended up in military school where he was subjected often to the sadistic whims of boys bigger and stronger than he. But somehow Truman Capote managed to survive his adolescent and teenage years. He became a copy boy for the New Yorker at age 18 and then a published writer and then a successful novelist. By 1959, Tiny Truman and Tough as Nails Nell were both in their 30s, both living and writing in New York City. Harper Lee's masterpiece was still a few months away from reaching every bookshelf in America, but it was finished, and it was about to be published. Capote already had several successful titles under his belt, including the novels Other Voices, Other Rooms in 1948, The Grass Harp in 1951, and the previous year's Breakfast at Tiffany's, which was already in the process of becoming a feature film starring Audrey Hepburn. And I am embarrassed to report to the two of you today that I have never in my life seen that film. I have never seen it. I meant to do it for research for this very episode before I got here in this chair today, and I didn't do it. 
and I fucked that up, but I'm going to watch it this week. I promise by the time we come back next week to do part two, there will be a brief Breakfast at Tiffany's uh, review. Okay. Have you guys seen it? Yes. Yes. I've never seen it, and I'm so ashamed. I am so ashamed. (laughs) I am. Anyway, with little else to do except await her turn at literary notoriety, Nell Lee packed up a small suitcase and accompanied the already accomplished Capote with his steamer trunks bursting with extravagant clothing and expensive scotch nearly all the way to the Colorado border to Holcomb, Kansas. And how long is this after the murders have taken place? Capote and Lee got to Holcomb, Kansas on December the 15th, one month after the murders. Okay. And so basically he has taken Harper Lee with him because she can As a research assistant and she can relate to these people. He paid her 900 bucks. For the whole time. For her time as a research assistant for the month they spent there together, she received $900 from Capote. Because she's small town, southern. Oh, yeah. Everyday people. She, she's, the, she's the connection between him and these people. And he's more of a city boy. He, he relates more to the big city and his area of the Big Apple. And, yeah. and that's, that's his style. That, yeah. And he, Capote, if I'm if I am correct, had a difficulty relating to people in general. Yeah, that, he, he, could, he could come statement? off as uh, gruff okay. or... Uh, like snooty? Snooty. Kind of, yeah, that's, know, that sounds right. Hoity-toity, I guess you There it say, is, yeah. If you were, you Not know. Not to be confused with a hotty-totty. <laughs> no. If you're an old Miss grad. That's right. Um, so, she, so he understands and at least is self-aware enough to know, I've got to have someone with me to mm-hmm. help Speak to the to yes. the individuals there, to the, quote, these people. These people. Yeah, okay. Absolutely, positively, everyone in town looked askance at Capote at the start. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but Lee's Southern charm eventually translated into productive sit-down interviews with dozens of locals. Over that holiday season, Capote and Lee got to know many residents of the area very well, including the Alvin Dewey family. And that was fortunate for Capote and his literary endeavors because Dewey was the lead man on the clutter case for the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, the KBI, from now on. Fortunately for the future genre of true crime, KBI agent Dewey's wife, Marie, was a native of New Orleans. And she was especially charmed by the reputations and attentions of her fellow Southerners, Capote and Lee. Mm Mm-hmm. Martinis and cigarettes disappeared by the dozens, and the foundation of a friendship was laid over extravagant meals and after-dinner drinks during that otherwise unbearable season of sadness that occurred in Holcomb in 1959. As they made their rounds about town that holiday season, Capote and Lee could see the fear and suspicion that gripped the community that had formerly seemed open, trusting, honest, and God-fearing. How ironic that one of the first phrases Capote ever uttered to Agent Dewey on the day they met was that he did not care if the killers were caught or not. After all, Capote was only interested at the time in documenting the effects of the murders on the people of Finney County. Oh, so that's why he went originally. Yeah. He could have talked all day and never said that, Dewey said later. Mm -hmm. Because I cared very much. Of course. If they were caught. Yeah, I'm sure. It was an inauspicious beginning, certainly, but soon, and with Nell Lee's and Mrs. Alvin Dewey's help, Capote and Mr. Alvin Dewey learned to work together. 
When the killers were eventually caught and brought back to Garden City, that's the capital of the, uh, the county seat of Finney County, seven miles away where the church is, Capote, again with Dewey's assistance, got to know the killers as well. And it was soon after interviewing the killers for the first time that Capote started to consider that a series of magazine articles might not do the story justice. But those details come next week. So he's originally trying to get some information on to do some some magazine. Articles. He's in and out. He's going to write a four page or a four part series in the New Yorker or uh, mm-hmm. uh, the Saturday Evening Post. So it's it's originally going to be like a a human. What's what's the genre? Human interest. Yes, yeah, like a human interest yeah. piece. Yeah. Okay. And, and he doesn't he, care if they catch him or not. And and he wants to observe and then report on how the people of the area are yeah, handling because this. he grew up in a tiny town he feels like at least that part of him understands how these people would react yeah even though he still needs nell lee as a buffer mm-hmm. to communicate with them mm-hmm. but he grew up in monroeville alabama so he gets small town stuff yeah mm-hmm. he and he wants to see how this horrible crime mm-hmm. affects these people and then they caught him but we'll, and that is, I know you said that you're going to talk about that next week, but uh-huh. he does interview them quite a bit. Oh, yeah. The killers. So much so that he caused some criticism for that. Did he not? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and since you said that, speaking of next week, that's also when I'm going to tell you guys about how Agent Dewey and his fellow KBI investigators figured out the identities of the man responsible for killing the clutters and how they set about tracking them down. For now, just know that it was six weeks after the crime on December the 30th, 1959, when Agent Dewey received a phone call from Las Vegas. The police there had found the two men that the KBI had by then become certain they were looking for. The two men who, with malice and premeditation, plotted, planned, and perpetrated the killings of Herbert Clutter and his wife and their two children. After weeks of abject fear among the people of Holcomb, many of whom suspected the guilty were locals, walking among them the entire time. There was a slight sense of relief that these soon-to-be-confessed killers were two things. Number one, and most importantly, they were in custody. And nearly as important for the emotional well-being of the people in and around Holcomb, the two suspects were strangers to the townspeople. Rumors had swirled from the start that some other farmer had it in for Herbert Clutter for some slight or other, or even that there was a love triangle involving a neighbor's wife gone horribly wrong. Just all the drama. Right, yeah. Surely those West Kansans had thought the deaths of their neighbors could not be attributed to random malevolence alone. Yeah, we. I mean, we always want to try to figure out, and when we do this, because, you know, we've talked about this before. You have to be careful not to victim blame, but it always yeah. happens. Yeah. Because people are trying to separate how this could not happen to them. But the truth is, something like this could happen to you. And you could be minding your own business. And I'm not trying to <laughs> terrify everybody. Yeah, lock your make doors. everybody look over their shoulder even more. But just because someone is murdered in their home in cold blood, mm-hmm. say the name of the book, does not necessarily mean that they were doing anything shady to bring this upon themselves. But that's a tale as old as time. People trying to figure out, well, what did they do? Yeah. Or blame the boyfriend, Nancy's boyfriend. You're looking for something, right? So surely not. 
this can't just be random. But that is exactly what it turned out to be, as we will get to. And but, that's that. But I was just want to say that's yeah. what makes this so terrifying. Mm-hmm. And it is it it sort of changes the way that people behave. It certainly did in Holcomb, Kansas, in November of nineteen fifty nine. Definitely. Yeah. And that's that's a perfect segue because before the folks in Finney County found out who had killed the clutters, they were afraid more than anything else. Sure. There was one confrontation from in cold blood that I'll tell you guys about. Uh, Agent Dewey was in Hartman's Cafe one day having a cup of coffee. It was a couple of weeks after the murders had taken place. It is recounted in in cold blood, which makes me think that Truman Capote was there with him and saw this firsthand. A half-drunk ranch hand looked up from his game of checkers as Dewey was sipping that cup of coffee and said, I've got a house full of women who will not go to the bathroom alone. When in the hell are you going to arrest someone? That's your job. Mm-hmm. And notice, I want to pay attention to what he said. When are you going to arrest someone? Yeah. Not... They all still think it's local people. Catch, Somebody locally did this. That's not, what they think. Right, but not catch who did this. Yeah. Just arrest someone. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot of people in town who probably still think that Bobby Rupp did it. <laughs> he had to pass a lie detector test. This is the boyfriend. The, the, the 17-year-old boyfriend of Nancy Clutter. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who think, well, how, why, why is the Rupp boy? Not arrested. Yeah. yeah. I could see that. Yeah. Totally. And, and for the same reason that, that so many others don't get arrested, there's no evidence pointing to his guilt. Yeah. Exactly. You can't there's just no arrest someone because they Cause you are think the they did best. It. Yeah. Like, because it's like, well, he was the last one to see him. This is mm-hmm. all we know. But that, exactly. That's all you know. The evidence that they know. have at that point, you could fit in a thimble. Yeah. And look, we live in a small town. Mm-hmm. We know how the rumors and the talk happens. And it's crazy. And someone is convicted in the, quote, court of law around the, the, the gossips and the, the social The court media. of public opinion. Yeah. 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 Yes. And then turns out not happened. We figured this out researching local cases. We hear umpteen stories about what happened and things that people experienced. Yeah. Only to find out none of that happened. Mm-hmm. Right. They're all wild stories. Yeah. So we understand that part of a small town. Certainly. But I also understand being afraid and being tired and demanding that they figure this out. But at the same time, I'm glad that he's not just focusing on one person and then making it fit. Right. Because well, we've done follow- stories about that too. Yes. He's trying to follow the evidence, which you said is yeah. very minute. Scant at this point. So anyway, at that confrontation at Hartman's Cafe, Dewey remained silent. He finished his coffee and then he walked directly to the clutter's house, which was one mile away. Mm-hmm. He did that often. Uh, you kind of get the sense that Capote is implying. He, he would go to the house often. He would walk the hallways. He would climb the stairs. He would look for clues just in case mm-hmm. they missed something sure. that day that they were all there together <laughs> trying to figure out what happened. Mm-hmm. And rest assured that no one was happier when the killers were caught than KBI agent Alvin Dewey. I'm sure. No doubt about it. Uh, after those two ex-convicts, who were responsible for the crime were delivered to Dewey in early January of 1960. And that's 
for next week. The suspects were marched up the steps of the Finney County Courthouse in Garden City and locked into the fourth floor jail. Hundreds of people who had been personally touched by the crime and its outright cruelty breathed a little easier finally as the new year of 1960 got underway, with the exception, perhaps, of one person. Truman Capote had come to realize, after the killers were caught, that he was no longer writing a series of serialized magazine articles about the effects of the clutter murders on that community. Now he had much, much more to work with. In only a month, those first words to Alvin Dewey about not caring if the killers were ever caught had come home to haunt Capote. Certainly, Capote couldn't have known he was about to embark on a six-year journey that would culminate with the writing of what remains today one of the most famous accounts of true crime in American literary history. But here's what Capote did know that day when he left Holcomb, Kansas in mid-January of 1960 for the first time. He would come back many times. He knew he was going to have to write a book because now he had what every good book needs, an ending. And with the killers captured and quickly confessed, Capote's new book now had the perfect ending or at least the beginning of one. Next week, we will tell you about the investigation that led to the apprehension of the two men responsible for killing the clutters. We will tell you why they did it, how they did it, and where they went after they did it before they were caught in Las Vegas on December the 30th. We will tell you what happened that night in the clutter house, and I'm going to tell you guys right now, of all the true crime stories I have ever read, I've got chills on my back and my arms right now, what happened in that house that night haunts me every fucking time I think about it. Mm. It's the worst. It is the worst. We will also tell you about Capote's years-long struggle to finally, at long last, get to the end of the end of the book that began this nation's fascination with true crime, a fascination that remains at a full rolling boil to this day. We will also tell you about a couple of ex-convicts recently paroled from the Kansas State Penitentiary, a 28-year-old two-bit check chiseler named Richard Hickok. Call him Dick, he always insisted, and you gladly will soon enough. And a 31-year-old pitiful, half-paralyzed petty thief named Perry Edward Smith. Next week. Well, thank I'm going to cry Scott. next week. I know. I'm going to cry next week. I know. You're struggling. This one makes me cry every time I do it. Oh, it's a, it's every a time I read one. it, every time I talk about it, it makes me cry. Well, Capote wrote an incredible novel. Capote did a fantastic job. With, God, along with the help of Harper Lee. Yes. Both, both of you are Alabama natives. So thank you for that. And next week we will hear the exciting conclusion of In Cold Blood and the Clutter family. Did I lip smack a bunch tonight? I have this rubber band on my hand to remind me I not to. can't ever hear it until later on, so okay, y'all well, let us know in the comments. Yeah, if I lip smack yep. too much, let me know because we're trying to correct that problem. <laughs> well, y'all go give us a follow on all our social medias. We're True Crime on Easy Street everywhere. You can go check out our website, truecrimeoneasystreet.com. If you got anything you want to talk to us about, send us an email, truecrimeoneasystreet at gmail.com. Uh, Katie and I will read them. Kelly will not. No. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Kelly only doesn't read Scott's emails, which oh, yeah, you can blame right. her. Yeah, I will read. I will read your emails. Basically, what I read was just like a really long email. That's why she doesn't read my emails. <laughs> nope. Mm. <laughs> Is that it? Are we done? That's it. Good night, everybody. <laughs>